Friends, our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Hear now the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, as we gather under these words of Christ's teachings... May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you. And may it lead us into faithfulness. Amen. Well, speaking of Princeton Seminary, I remember having a conversation with one of my classmates about this very passage from the Sermon on the Mount. One of my fellow students argued that the entirety of of the Sermon on the Mount is a declaration of how impossible it is for us to follow Jesus. So that by the end, we have no choice but to throw ourselves onto God's grace and beg for forgiveness. His final proof of this theory was verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, he said. Why would Jesus go and demand something impossible of us? See, this whole thing is meant to remind us of our sinfulness, our depravity, so that we're deeply remorseful and realize that we have absolutely nothing to offer God. Well, I agree with two things that he said. One is that, yes, we all need grace. Imagine trying to be faithful without not only grace, but the presence of the Spirit to support us. Aren't we glad we're given those things? And the second thing that I agree with is that Jesus would never demand something impossible from us because Jesus is not a tyrant. I don't agree with the rest. The Sermon on the Mount is a difficult teaching. It asks us to return nonviolence for violence, to return love for scorn, to pray even for our enemies. And wouldn't it be nice if this was all just hyperbole, all just a bunch of words that in the end give us a hugely convenient get-out-of-discipleship-free card. But there's no proof that Jesus was joking or being sarcastic or trying to set us up in some kind of moral gotcha. Jesus offers us the Sermon on the Mount as a description, as a collection of concrete examples of what it looks like to follow him in the real world. All of that lofty language about love and forgiveness and grace is given teeth and practical application in this sermon he has. 
This is where the proverbial rubber of Jesus' message meets the road. So I'm sorry to tell you that the say what this morning is not going to come as me telling you that we don't have to pray for our enemies or love them. Because these verses mean exactly what they say. Maybe, though, we'll be able to hear them differently this morning in a way that's life-giving. I don't have to tell you that praying for your enemies is really, really hard. And I think that one of the things that makes it hard for us is that we can get caught up in the justice part of it. It can feel like praying for our enemies is some kind of concession that we approve somehow of their behavior. Or that we're wrong about them, which frankly we don't think we are. (laughs) That's why they're our enemies. Or, maybe the worst, that we think that we're just supposed to get over it and be nice. Which is turning into something akin to fluffy spiritual kumbaya where everyone is supposed to magically get along even in an unjust society but this doesn't really sound like Jesus does it the Jesus who always leads with grace but also isn't afraid to call us out the Jesus who spends the bulk of his time with people on the margins people that empire and religious authorities have shunned or shamed or forgotten Do we really believe that this Jesus would tell us just to get over it and play nice? It seems like at least part of his answer is how he frames this command. He doesn't say, get along with everyone and don't complain. He says, pray for your enemies, which at the very least assumes that we're going to have them. When I think of people that I might be tempted to call enemies. I think of people who are trying to build a world directly in opposition to the kind of world that I'm committed to building. I think of people who don't care for the poor or the suffering, people who pursue greed at any cost. I think of systems where people and nature are being crushed in return for power and privilege and stuffed pockets. I think of anything that takes away the inherent dignity of one being in God's good creation. And in my honest moments, I have to admit that sometimes that enemy is me. And it isn't just people or systems out there that need this transformation. But questioning that need for transformation, well, I don't think that's the problem this morning. Especially when we remember that the ministry of this Savior began with his mother, who proclaimed that God would scatter the proud, cast down the mighty, send the rich away empty, and fill the hungry with good things. So I just can't imagine that this command to pray for our enemies is asking us to turn a blind eye to the injustice in the world. That would seem to undo everything Jesus shows us he cares about in his ministry. So what is Jesus up to here? I think we find part of that answer in the final verse in this section, where Jesus commands us to be perfect as our Abba in heaven is perfect. That word in Greek does not mean probably what you're thinking about when you've heard it said to you to be perfect. It doesn't mean get it exactly right. It's not calling us to be without error or to never fail, or like my seminary classmate said, be and do the impossible. 
perfect isn't a gotcha here. It's a call to reorient our lives to the way that God sees things. Because this word comes from the root telos, which means the end. And it's not just any end, but it's the end that most fully consummates God's will. And as we remember from earlier in the summer, God's full will is wholeness, abundant life, healing, justice, shalom. So to be perfect, to abide in a state of telos, is to live in such a way that brings about that completion. It means not acting in a way that is against what God's kingdom is meant to be like. And we can all probably agree that hating people is not really in line with what God is going for in the end. We could also translate this as be complete, as God is complete. It's to be in alignment with the things of God and with the Jesus way. Jesus is asking us and even commanding us to be part of the kind of work that brings God's will to completion, to be about the completeness. We could also say that it means be whole, as your Father is whole, which means that we can't leave anything out, not even that part of us that is the very thing we despise in others. We can't ignore that or remain unconscious to it. We have to be whole. And when we pray for our enemies, that wholeness comes to us in the form of compassion. And I think the wholeness also reminds us that God has intentionally set this world up as a world of connection. So that I'm not me without you and you can't be you without me. And so the call here is to be guided not by a separateness that hatred brings, but by a togetherness that love does. That connection is integral to the wholeness, and we want to live from that. Praying for our enemies is about beginning with the end in mind, to quote Stephen Covey. It speaks to the reality that how we do things affects what we get. The process matters. And so, especially when we're seeking justice, how we go about it is vitally important. And we aren't going to get to God's end, which is love, if we start with hatred and anger and condemnation. So I want you to hear this morning that you can keep your conviction, but the anger and the condemnation within it, well, that has to go. We can't keep that. Because if we really want to be faithful to the beauty of the gospel... We have to sacrifice our own self-righteousness in pursuit of something bigger than that hit of satisfaction we get from feeling superior to someone. What salvation looks like to me is a slow conviction, slow conviction, that the way of Jesus is right and that it's not empty or foolish to pursue love as the force that will reconcile the world. Because the truth is, I know that what has most healed me has not been condemnation, but love. And I also know that the hardest times I've had to deal with other people who have harmed me, I have felt most healed when I have dealt with them, not in condemnation, but in love. Because the love works on both sides. And I imagine that might be true for you, too, if you think about it. 
So the real question in these verses isn't whether our enemies deserve to be prayed for. The question is whether we trust in the love of God to heal all things, even hard things, even unjust and evil things. Because if we do dare to trust in that, loving and praying for our enemies doesn't get any easier, I'm afraid. But it does seem to be an obvious and integral part of the path of how we get there. It dictates how we show up in the world and how we respond. And stick with me here, but one of the clearest moments that I feel I've ever had in understanding this came in black belt class. I take Taekwondo, and every once in a while we do self-defense drills. Not all the time, but, you know, every once in a while. And all of the ways that we are trained to respond end with the weapon being pointed away from both us and the attacker and being pointed towards the ground. What we do is we block and we neutralize the assailant's arm so that we take the weapon out of the equation. And I want you to see that that's a very different kind of thing than the kind of confrontation that is meant to end with us having the gun or the weapon and pointing it back at someone else. That's a very different way of ending that situation. And one night when I was practicing this, I got the little rubber knife in my hands and I'm pointing it at the ground and I thought, oh, okay, I see. Praying for my enemies is what it means to point the weapon away from everyone in the situation. And hating my enemy is what it looks like to simply want the weapon to be in my hands instead of theirs. And the conviction is, and the truth is, I don't want anyone to get hurt. I want us all to win, right? I don't want any of this to end in someone being hurt or harmed. Ultimately, I want to play by a totally different set of rules that isn't about aggression or power, but it's about love. That's the completeness, right? The thing that ends with action that points whatever could harm us away from everybody involved. There's this ancient ninja manual that says it's a fundamental lesson for the ninjas to think more of the way out than the way in. To me, that wisdom is what's at play here in the Sermon on the Mount because in all of these examples that Jesus gives, turning the other cheek, giving your shirt in addition to your coat, walking an extra mile, he's telling us over and over that violence is never going to be the way out. Hatred isn't going to lead us out. Judgment and condemnation don't get us out. No, all of these things just take us further into the mess. They don't fix the problem. They simply extend it. Because the real trick of being a ninja is to get out of a situation as smoothly as possible and with the least amount of resistance. So, okay, we won't probably be confronted by a Roman soldier this week who asks us for our coat. But if we get attacked in a parking lot by a robber, the quickest way a ninja would tell you to get out of that is to throw your wallet or purse one way and to run as fast as you can in the other. Get out! 
with the least amount of resistance possible. It means in Taekwondo that we learn how to neutralize the situation so that hopefully nobody gets hurt. And what it means, beloveds, when it comes to our hearts is that we don't want to walk away from any situation or any person and realize that we let them take our dignity or our convictions or our love. Turning your cheek or giving your shirt or even praying for those who persecute you, well, that seems like a good deal when we realize that the price that we pay otherwise. The Dalai Lama tells this true story of a Buddhist monk who was named Zongpo, and he was attacked on the road by robbers. But before they could go, he asked them if they would just stop for a moment. And probably because they were so shocked at how calm he was during a, an active robbery situation, they obliged him. And he set his hands out, and he dedicated the goods. And in Buddhist practice, a, a dedication of merit is kind of like a blessing or a prayer. So I want you to get this image of this little Buddhist monk in the midst of being robbed, placing his hands on his freshly robbed, stolen goods and blessing them that they would be of the greatest benefit to the robbers who held them. And then he continued and he said, hey, listen, if you go this way, you're going to run into my neighbors and they know me and they will know that these are my things and they might want to take them from you. So I suggest that you go this other way. It's a little farther around the next town, but no one will bother you then. And the robbers walked away speechless. Stories like this move us in our souls because we know that this is the kind of action that brings about our wholeness. And we may even believe that this is the kind of action that could possibly bring about their wholeness. We know that already, even if we forget. And praying for our enemies is one way that we can bring that knowing and that awareness into our practice and hopefully into our life because we want this wholeness to show up in our lives in a way that changes things don't we be whole jesus says live into completion be about the completeness choose love so that you'll resonate with the heartbeat of God whose love is the highest will and our eventual end. So what happens when we pray for our enemies? Do we become perfect? I don't know. Even in this way I'm trying to explain to you a broader understanding of perfection, I don't know. But maybe our self-righteousness shrinks a little, and that's not nothing. Maybe we start to realize that beyond our condemnation for this person there's also a desire for them to know their belovedness because we know that that heals things it changes people perhaps as we pray for our enemies we also find the courage to ask God where we too might be harboring the very things we dislike in this person or this system so that God can bring it to light for us and we can change
More than anything, I think what happens when we pray in this way is that we practice living from the ethic of love. And that allows us a lot of creativity and possibility when we confront our enemies. What more powerful tool can we have when surrounded by such things than the power of a love that has overcome all things? So, beloveds, as we enter into this week, I invite you and I invite myself to love our enemies and to pray for those who actively work against us. May we do so with courage because more than anything, we long to live toward the completeness that awaits us and all of creation. And may our spiritual practice bring about a wholeness within us. A wholeness that can be a blessing to the world. Amen? Amen.